Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Bridge Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 27 of Music is Not a Genre. Not doing the hand gestures today. Too busy. Too much going on. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Subscribe at youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. If you'd like to see the videos, every podcast I do, if you're listening on audio, comes with an accompanying video that I'm doing right now. And you can see that if you subscribe at youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. My website is nickdematio.com, where if you contact me, you get a free newsletter, which I send out a few times a month. And you get uh, lots more news than just about this podcast performances and t-shirts and all these things like that. And of course, please support and listen to my band rec at recarea.bandcamp.com. Let's get into it. I know some of you have been waiting for this. I'm trying to parse these out throughout the season. This is, of course, the fourth episode, of uh, fourth edition of my six-part Beatles series. And this one is called The Beatles Part 4, Eclectic Experimenters. I, I almost used experiments and entropy, and I'll explain why later. But, you know, one of those is going to end up being the subtitle. Whatever looks better on the card. Uh so this is focusing on albums that were released 1967 through 69, or at least 69. Those of you watching can see here what those albums are. Magical Mystery Tour, The Beatles, also known as The White Album, and uh, Yellow Submarine. So two of those were actually companions to films. And before I get into those albums, I guess you know a good uh, place to start would be to set up where the Beatles were at this time. So if you've been following along and you just finished watching part three, uh, which was, I believe, uh, episode 21, you will know that the last album I talked about there was Sgt. Pepper's. And I put that in with Rubber Soul and Revolver for a reason. And you can look, you can watch that if you haven't, and you'll find out why. This next period, you would, you know, Sgt. Pepper is the culmination 
of that kind of studio experimentation that they were doing and, and expanding and really giving more uh, vocabulary to what music could be in the studio. So they had dipped a little bit in popularity, just a little bit through 66. And then 67 comes along, Sgt. Pepper's wows everybody or almost everybody. And they are on the top of the world again. And they've achieved everything that they've wanted to up until that point, which is a common theme going through a lot of what I'm working on right now, not just in the rec album that I'm working on that's coming out soon, but also I'm guesting on another podcast uh, talking about David Bowie's Berlin trilogy. And there's a similar thing going on there uh, in, in a different context, of course, and for different reasons. But imagine being the Beatles. You're, you've done everything you want to do and you're on top of the world. You were able to subsume yourself slightly into characters that weren't the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Then where do you go? You know, uh, Brian Epstein had died, uh, was it Epstein, whatever, had died, and they were starting to itch a little bit. Relationships were changing outside of the band. Relationships were changing inside of the band. George was getting a lot more antsy, wanting to have more of his you know, music included and all of that. And in general, that cohesion that they had really started to break down to some degree during the Sgt. Pepper period. Uh, especially since that was a point at which, you know, Paul was really stepping up and taking control over a lot of things and all of that. And, and, you know, John had different interests and was starting to, you know, prep, you know, see Yoko and prep, uh, his new, the, the solo album or whatever it was that was happening at the time. And they were all kind of going off in their direction. So they hadn't quite fractured yet. You know, the history, I don't have to go over it in that much detail, but here comes, an opportunity to do a few things. And one was a film. So they had this idea of a tour bus that takes people on kind of a wild Timothy Leary ride, you know, LSD influence, whatever. And it was basically just a compilation of skits, sketches, loosely, you know, thrown together under the guise of a tour of a mad, the magical mystery tour. When it was released, they, uh, it was released on British television. BBC at the time was broadcasting in black and white. So this phantasmagorical, you know, journey looked flat and, and dull and was not very well received. Uh, even though in hindsight, you know, sure, I don't think anybody would claim it was their best movie, but it's a worthy movie and it's a fun movie and has a lot of uh, shades of Monty Python and that kind of British humor. And I'll kind of get into a little bit later how they were so, you know, deeply related Monty Python and the Beatles throughout uh, most of their careers, frankly, uh, almost. And their part of their objective, of course, was to release an album companion to the film. And so here we have 1967 the film comes out. Uh, the companion was released in the UK as a double EP, which I think was a novel idea at the time. 
And the double EP, I think, had six songs or something like that. It did barely had any songs. It barely qualified as a double anything. You know, it might even be better to say it was a single EP, but it was. it's how things are released that give them their name. As we know, format is so much in uh, names when it comes to music, just like in, is, genre is a part of that world. But in the U.S., it was released as a full album. And what they did, of course, with so many of the U.S. versions earlier on, they put singles in with the songs that were meant to be on the album, so non-album singles, and released it as a full album. But in this case, and even though the Beatles were not super happy about it at the time, this is the only time in all of these episodes, this Beatles you know, series, that I am going to use the U.S. version of an album as the official version. Now, that's not me making that decision. That was the Beatles uh, or the Beatles organization, whatever, in 1987 uh, kind of codified the, the international versions of all of the albums would henceforth and forevermore be blah, 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 such and such. And in every case, the, the British or, or in the case of like Sgt. Pepper's and others, the only version were, were used, not any of the U.S. versions, except for this. When it was decided that this was, I guess, the superior collection, the better version. And that really comes into significance when I talk about the track listing and what is on this, right? And it's a correction to my previous episode that said all subsequent albums were the same in both countries. It's true now. But in the, like I said, there are, there are still existing U.S. versions out there of the other albums especially when you had different names like Beals Yesterday and Today and all of that stuff. Uh, so there's my correction. And then let's get to the, yeah, so this is what I wanted to say about this and why I think that the fact that this is a full album is so significant. It's possible. I won't say this is their greatest album because it was not conceived as an album album. You know, and there's other considerations. There are other considerations to make when you are judging whether an album is the best, et cetera, et cetera. One of which is cohesion and and arc and all of that stuff and how one song flows from the next track track uh, order and all that track sequence. That's not what this is, right? But I would say that this may be their single greatest collection of music. So as an album, and I'm discounting things like the One collection, which came many decades later, or the Red and Blue albums, or anything like that, because they're not official Beatles. As far as the official Beatles albums, I think Magical Mystery Tour is their single greatest collection. There's not a single, not that the Beatles, you know, had weak songs in general, but there is not a single, not only not a single weak song, but every song was basically a hit single or could be a hit single. So let's get into that because I think, you know, this is going to illustrate that when we go over the track listing. But let me say one more thing. I'm a little scattered today in case you didn't notice. There's a lot going on. It's my daughter's birthday. I've got this guest spot coming up later, which I hope you uh, watch and I will publicize. I'm sorry I forget the name of the uh, Rock is Lit. Rock is Lit. L-I-T. As rock is literature, because the host, uh, she reads a book that has something to do with music and then talks about the book and then brings on an expert in the music to talk about the music, right? So just a little plug there. 
And that's partly why I'm so crazed and scattered. There's not that much uh, time happening here. A little insight into what's going on behind the scenes. And so here we are with Magical Mystery Tour. In a sense, it was an echo of what was happening on Sergeant Pepper. Because again, you have these personae, you know, there's an introductory song, just like Sergeant Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, It also included the U.S. version, which again is now the official version. Two of the singles that were recorded at the time of Sgt. Pepper's that many people thought if they had been included on Sgt. Pepper's, it would have been a better album, which is Strawberry Field and Penny Lane, are now are now officially on Magical Mystery Tour. And this is probably their most directly drug-influenced album. There have been plenty of you know, uh, claims that other songs in other ways were influenced more by drugs and maybe single songs. That might be the case. But as far as a full album, there's a lot of that on here. And yet, unlike so many other drug-influenced bands, the the level of cohesion on each song is, of course, you know, uh, to a Beatles level. And let's get to just quickly describing the movie again. I won't describe it again, but I will make that reference again to Monty Python in that uh, the Python, Monty Python has often been called the Beatles of comedy. They were influenced to some degree by the comedy of the Beatles and vice versa. You know, and a lot of that was, well, that was what was going on, the goon show or whatever it was called. So you can't really say there's necessarily a direct one-to-one. But then in subsequent years and after the Beatles broke up, and I talked to this about this a little bit in a different episode, George Harrison, who was very much into humor and especially that kind of satire, their comedy style was like intelligent farce meets surreal satire. Uh, he financed with Handmade Films, his company, uh, Cohen, I, I forget the other guy's name, uh, the movie Life of Brian at a time when Python really couldn't afford to make another movie. Uh, the, there was the Ruddles that came out in the 70s with Eric Idle and all of that. That was kind of a parody of the Beatles, which I haven't seen yet. And I'm having a hard time finding. So if somebody can tell me where to watch this, let me know. And, uh, you know, if this were about Monty Python, I'd get more in depth about how many connections there are. But just to say anybody out there is a Python fan and a Beatles fan. You should know how connected they are. There was a scene in Magical Mystery Tour that I've talked about before in other contexts where they go into a music hall and there's a band playing. That band was named the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, a real band, had real albums and the whole thing, British band. They'd had uh, they were music hall, traditional jazz psychedelia with surreal humor and avant-garde. That was kind of their mix of style for their music and they were playing a song and singing a song and you hear part of it and it's called death cab for cutie you hear them sing that and of course anybody who knows music from the last 20 years at least knows there's a band called that they 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 got their name from magical mystery tour the early part of their career i read that ben gibbard in particular couldn't stand that He's like, oh, I wish I had named them something else because now everybody asks me about that name. But now in later years, it's like, it's kind of cool, you know, because mostly because everybody knows if you were ever curious about the name of the band, you could just look it up. 
you know. Uh, also around that time, you had the All You Need Is Love live broadcast on Our World on June 25th, 1967. And so all of this comes together, this album comes together either as a double EP or as the full U.S. album. I contend that it would have been pretty poorly received if Sgt. Peppers hadn't paved the way. But people were now expecting that kind of music. And so, you know, by some assessments, it really is sort of an echo of Sgt. Peppers. And in other ways, it is, as the Beatles always did, moving on even more. They dug even deeper into the psychedelia and, and some of the weirdness. And that eclectic experimenter subtitle is going to come into play in all of these albums. Let's get to the track listing here of Magical Mystery Tour then, and you'll see what I mean. So the first side were songs from the movie. And I, I'm going to hopefully pick this up without knocking stuff down, but it's just, it's a, it's cool. I mean, if you don't have that whole Beatles collection that's in that black rectangular box, I know you can just stream all this now, but get it because the pictorials in here and you know, all the shots, uh, very cool. You know, there's the back of it. The first uh, song, of course, is Magical Mystery Tour. Great song, and I think in some ways rivals Sgt. Pepper's as a theme song. It might not be as popular, but in some ways I like it better. Uh, I'm not sure why. And I love how it kind of peters out at the end with like with some jazz licks and things like that. It's very atmospheric. It's very cool. And then Fool in the Hill, which for some reason some critics didn't like, is just another... Another classic is sort of an echo of the song Nowhere Man, uh, Flying, which is an instrumental that for some reason, even though no one did anything with this, you know, it's, uh, they were all singing. And it just sticks in your head as so many other songs do. Uh, Blue Jay Way by Harrison is, I think, one of his stronger songs, frankly, and very... Um, you know, uh, in Eastern influence, as so much of his stuff was at the time. Your mother should know is that kind of music hall, you know, feel as when I'm 64, Martha, my dear, and all of that. And then I am the walrus. I did uh, a live acoustic Beatles set back in 2020 that included lesser-known Beatles songs, and one of them was I Am The Walrus, and almost all of the songs I picked were from this period that I'm talking about right now. And there's, you know, reason for that, even though this was such a well-known, great period, there were so many songs released on all these albums here. You're talking about almost five albums worth, uh, sorry, almost four albums worth of material. A lot of people don't know of some of the, you know, album cuts, let's just say. And yeah, I'm the Walrus is famous as a, you know, people can say cuckoo cuckoo and all that stuff, but do they really know the song? So I'm going to put a link to that live acoustic show that I did. You can hear a lot of the songs that I'm talking about uh, in this episode. Side two were the singles, non-album singles that now are officially on the album. And you have, I mean... Hello, Goodbye, Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, Baby, You're a Rich Man, and All You Need is Love, which is the first time it officially appeared on an album. And that I'll talk about what that means later on. My favorites are this, all of them. And that's, I think, why I think I said that once before and that I forget which album that was. Was it Revolver? Or was it Help? But I think that this album, 
as far as a collection of songs would rank, I don't know how to rank the Beatles, whatever, you know, in my top three, perhaps just because there's not a song on here that you really get tired of listening to in, in my mind. And there's still a lot of variation. And I, I will say this too. I think this is the last album to me in which they had really, you know, come together to work as a unit until, you know, when they were giving it a shot for the a little bit in the last couple, which worked to some degree and didn't work to other degrees. But as far as their first run of stuff, this was sort of them, let's get together and pull these songs together. And some of them predated 67, so you can understand why that was the case. But I would recommend this as one of maybe the first three albums to listen to if you don't know a whole lot about the Beatles. I would say jump right in to uh, Magical Mystery Tour. And then go watch the movie. I think it's it's fun. It's worth it. It's weird. Uh, it's it's a good time. Which leads me to the next album called The Beatles. Every every cover had a, a number stamped on it. So, you know, each one was unique. And the entire album technically, I guess, is called The Beatles because it says The Beatles on there, but in a sense had no title. Now it's known as The White Album because of the cover. And it was bold for many, many reasons. First of all, their only double album. And a pretty packed double album at that. Second of all, the cover. So for the last few covers... You have this crazy magical mystery tour. You have, of course, Sgt. Pepper's. You have Rubber Soul and Revolver, which were, which are iconic covers, both of them. You even have, uh, shoot, With the Beatles, I think. Is that the one where they're half in shadow? So there was an attempt, almost all their previous covers, to make a bold statement visually. This is a bold statement visually as well, but an anti-statement. And, and I think that the White Album itself is really their anti-statement in general. You know, this was Magical Mystery Tour happened and they were all itching to kind of explore some things. And that's when they went off to India and the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and did all of that. Uh, There's a song on this album uh, dedicated or about him, Sexy Sadie. And, And they needed to do that. They needed to bust out of whatever was going on. It was a little too intense. And they tried taking on alter egos to get away from needing to be Beatles. Then they went away and they come back and some of the music was started there and all of that. But it gave them an opportunity and a, and a real, the impetus and the push and and the, you know, no looking back kind of desire to just be anti-everything. You know, this album was anti-singles, even though singles were released from the album, unlike so many of their other albums, they weren't just trying to pack the album with singles. It was anti-cohesive, like their middle period, where they were Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Peppers, where they were trying to make cohesive albums that made a statement as an album, as well as a bunch of songs, this, this again, made an anti-statement in that they were saying everything that we're doing that we feel is worthy to put on here, we're going to put on here, whether it seems to fit together or not. And in and, and that way, it was also anti-concept 
like Sergeant Pepper. And again, anti for all of these means that it was also that thing. So it's this weird Zen thing where it was anti packed with singles like their early albums, but it, it a ton of singles were released from the album, unlike so many of their other albums. It was anti-cohesive like their middle albums, and yet at the same time, there's a there is a wild cohesion to it that to me, and I put it in the text below this video or audio, epitomizes the Beatles more than any other album, this album. And then it was anti-concept because they were saying, screw the visuals, screw the alter egos, screw trying to create st- stage persona or any of that stuff. In fact, let's just put it on white, which is a concept. So it's it's both anti and non-anti. It, it's really kind of interesting. The idea of negative space, the idea of letting it all go and leaving it all in, like the, this this convergence of opposites, this yin-yang to all of it. You can see the influence in, uh, you know, Eastern philosophy and all of that. Uh, I disagree. Some critics have said, and I think even George Martin said this, that there is a better single album hidden within this double album. I understand that, but it would have changed the nature of what it was supposed to be. It achieved its purpose. It was supposed to be a sprawling collection. It was supposed to be, this is who we are. This is what we're doing right now. Take it or leave it. Accept it as it is, you know, all or nothing. You want to pick and choose, you can. We we gave a lot of thought to how the songs flow together, but this is just us doing what we do. And like I said, I think it is the best representation of everything the Beatles are. If If maybe Magical Mystery Tour might be one of the places to start, we're getting into the Beatles and understanding the the weirdness of what they could do and the intensity and hooks and all of the great stuff like that. I think the Beatles, the White Album, is the place to go if you're like, I just want to know what the Beatles were in general. This is the, because it has everything. It has stuff that harkens back to their early years. It has stuff that kind of prefaces what was going to happen next. It has stuff that was happening at the time and stuff from a couple of years ago and stuff that never showed up anywhere else. And yeah, it's a double album. So it it really, I think, is the best way to start. I think it's 30 tracks. So, you know, still not that long of a listen. So go listen to it. Pause. How was it? Did you like it? Yeah. Okay, great. Now you'll know what I'm talking about because you went to listen to it. It's so varied in style, in part because they weren't trying to create one sound. You know, in all of their other albums... As much variation as there was, and that's the brilliance of of, of bands like this. Uh, it's something that I believe I've achieved at times with Wreck, that uh, you know Prince has achieved, that David Bowie achieved, so many others. Is that there could be a, such a degree of variation with still a, a sound cohesion to it. With the White Album, they said, "Nah, you know, if we want this to be a folk song, it's going to be full on folk. If we want this to be a music hall song, full on music hall." Hard rock, heavy metal, full on, you know, whatever it is, it's going to be full on that and a full on kind of mod, you know, Savoy truffle thing, whatever it is, or, you know, political satire, piggies, full on. And that's what makes it so varied in sound or full on, you know, parody of, uh, you know, Chuck Berry or any of that stuff back in the USSR with 
the you know Beach Boys and Chuck Berry and all. That is reminiscent to me of what I did with my albums uh, with the Weird Objective in 2020, where that was five albums or EPs, albums, whatever you want to call them, 32 songs, so very similar amount, where I wasn't trying to create a signature sound on any of the albums. I was trying to go in the direction that the songs were taking me and put them together as significant, uh, singular collections. So, you know, Syzygy for the Weird was that dark techno and Syncope for the Weird was kind of R&B hip hop and and dance and all of that. And Symphony for the Weird was like, you know, more epic rock, whatever. Uh, Sympathy for the Weird was that kind of mellow downbeat stuff. And Synergy for the Weird was the closest that came to, well, this is what Wreck is, you know. Uh, That really is what they did here. And I think it's kind of the only time that they did it this fully. Because in every other case, they entered creating an album saying well, we want to achieve this overall objective with it. Whether you're talking about the uh, studio experimentation on Rubber Soul and Revolver, the creating a concept album world uh, for Sgt. Peppers or for Magical Mystery Tour, the going back to basics of Let It Be, the kind of swan song, let's let's just do the best music we can and, and sequence it in an amazing way of Abbey Road, you know, just anything like that. With the you know sole exception of Yellow Submarine, because that's I think an exception in a lot of ways. This is the album that didn't do any of that. Again, the concept was anti-concept, and because it's a double album, yes, most amount of recording time of any of the Beatles albums over seven hundred hours, over seven hundred hours of recording time, more than twice any other album. So. Even if you said any single, you know, like two sides of the four sides, average over 350 hours, that in itself is still more than any other single album, I believe. You can look it up, but that's that shows how much time they put into it. And that's because they had ultimate freedom, because, again, they had achieved everything they wanted to. They were getting to a place where they didn't want to keep uh, that idea of the uh, fantastical things like Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour. They weren't touring anymore. They knew what it meant to experiment in the studio, so they didn't need to prove that. They didn't need to prove anything. And this was their ability. I think Magical Mystery Tour was their first album where they were genuinely not proving, not trying to prove anything. But really, this was them saying, screw all of that. And that's a place they could get to because of their fame. And their unlimited time in the studio and all of that. This is also the least, the album with the least input from George Martin, other than Let It Be, of course. Which, when we get to that next episode, we'll talk about that. But George was in and out, you know, for various reasons here. They really kind of helmed a lot with the engineer and George's assistant and, and did the things they wanted to do. And of course, Paul, you know, obviously, oh, look at this. I had to press something on my screen. It's real world. Only 16 of the 30 tracks were played on by all four of the Beatles, which is just, I mean, that's half basically, which shows how they were fracturing 
They were often in the studio by themselves when they were doing the songs they were doing. It shows the single-mindedness each of them had regarding their compositions. I want it this way, so it's going to be this way. If George needed help from Paul or from John, he would do that, but he wouldn't necessarily bring everybody in together. Paul would uh, do songs completely by himself or just with George Martin. It shows the determination they had to make this both the sprawling collection that it is deliberately, but also personal, also in many statements in among themselves. When you have a song like Julia, you know, like that is such a statement or while my guitar gently weeps, you know, or even piggies, it's a statement Uh, or the messing around. And that was the statement itself, like a Rocky raccoon or something like that. And it's interesting and ironic that a retreat they went on to explore inner peace and unity was the catalyst that set off their fracturing. It wasn't the, there was more than one thing that did it, you know, their manager's death and so many other things of personal lives and all that, and just kind of outgrowing the idea of having to do everything together. But it shows how uh, important it was for them to do this album. It may be in some ways the album that defined who, who they would become as they were breaking up and especially after they broke up, their ability to explore these things, all four of them explore the things that they would end up doing afterwards was I think never stronger than on this album. And it also shows to me how, you know, ironically self-centered and individualistic, a lot of those kind of self-exploration you know, courses and journeys and retreats can be, they're valuable because I think it's important to understand yourself on levels other than what you do every day, things that you might not examine and all of that. But if you kind of get lost up your own ass, so to speak, or in your own head, you end up losing connection with the rest of the world or the desire to, you know, connect with people and integrate in any way and and you know you end up with a lot of individuals instead of individuals among a collective which i think both can coexist uh and both again the music and the studio atmosphere and the relationships outside of the studio and within the studio reflected all of that fracturing so to me whatever else happened before magical mystery to all that sergeant peppers sometimes was tense this is the album that was the beginning of the end, the White Album. Again, possibly maybe their most significant album for so many reasons, looking backward and looking forward. Track listing side one back in the USSR, Dear Prudence. Uh, we perform a lot of these live. We don't perform all of them yet, but that's one of our goals, to perform all the Beatles, but especially this album. Uh, just some favorite stuff. Glass Onion. Uh, I mean, that's like a follow-up to I Am The Walrus, but also weird in its own right. And those breaks uh, with the strings and all, beautiful. Obladiobladi went through so many changes as a song. And if it wasn't for John Lennon coming in one day, just kind of pissed and just impatient, being like, this is how it starts and pounding out that piano intro, they wouldn't have gotten to the speed or energy of the final version of that. Uh, wild Honey Pie is is wild and weird and short. Continuing story of Bungalow Bill is 
If you don't know that song, go listen to it. That's all I'm saying. It's fun as hell. While My Guitar Gently Weeps is very well known. Happiness is a Warm Gun is a song that was like three different songs, I believe, that put together to create one song. It's all John's stuff. And as compelling as the title is throughout. Martha, My Dear, which was ostensibly about Paul's dog. I'm So Tired, one of my favorites and one of the songs featured at the end of this podcast. Blackbird, which was about, you know, racial inequality, among other things. Piggies by Harrison, the political satire uh, and political statement. Rocky Raccoon, which George Martin thought shouldn't be on the album. And then it ends up being like kind of this subtly popular song by the Beatles that a lot of people like to do just acoustically because it works out. Don't Pass Me By, to me in some ways, might be my favorite original by, uh, you know, sung by Ringo of all of the Beatles music. I love how, I love how, even though it is kind of this country feel and it has that uh, fiddle, that the way the drums are mixed and played, it has a hardness to it. It's really, it's amazing. Why don't we do it in the road? Inspired by watching some monkeys having sex in the road, I guess. And Whatever. And again, real simple song, kind of a minimalist song. It would, uh, it's like a preview of what McCartney would do on his first solo album. I Will is beautiful. Julia is beautiful. And we're only halfway through this album. Birthday, we play almost every gig because it's somebody's birthday. Your Blues is on that acoustic live set that I did. So go check that link. Mother Nature's Son, beautiful song. Everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. Uh, just pounds it pounds it slams it and it slaps can i say that sexy sadie was lennon being disillusioned with the maharishi instead of maharishi it was sexy sadie you know helter skelter named after a ride at playgrounds but you know one of the first true heavy metal songs in my book long 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 even though it the title would you know suggest that it's long and drawn out there's something hypnotic about this song that really pulls me in anyway revolution one when you talk about revolution <laughs> you're you're really talking about three different things you're talking about the album cut the revolution one and i think there's there was another version of that even which is the shuffle beat dun 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 dun, dun that slower shuffle beat with the sound of, uh, I think, a cash register or whatever. So, yeah, Pink Floyd, you did it for money, but the Beatles did it first. And I know you guys, you know, whatever. Big Floyd was influenced by the Beatles. Uh, then you have the single revolution because Paul and some others were like, well, it's too slow to release as a single. Let's release this uh, hard-ass version. And so they did, which is the same song, but just a whole different feel. It doesn't have the shooby doo ops and all that stuff. So when we do it, we do a combination of those two. We do it the fast beat, but with the shooby doo ops, you know, a couple other things. I do uh, a lot of the bass line from the slower version in the faster version, etc. And then, of course, you have Revolution 9, which I'll get to. And that's the third part of this story. Honey Pie, I, you know, I love how it sounds like this. You know, it, it, brilliant. It's something I did for Move Ahead Long Boy when I mixed it in a way that made it sound like it was an old record. Uh, I'm sure that I got a lot of what I did on that song from the Beatles. And it's just a fun song. It's so of the period that Paul was trying to evoke. It's just proof that 
they weren't trying to create a cohesive sound. Again, they went full on with every song. Savoy Truffle is one of these. It it tickles, you know. It's some it's some for some reason a song that I keep returning to every couple of years. I think because it's so different from so many of the other Beatles songs, and one of my favorite Harrison songs, frankly, "Cry Baby Cry," is beautiful. And again, listen to this whole album. But this is a song like "Long Long Long," where or even like uh, "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" or "I'm So Tired." Just the way that it unfolds is amazing, and the energy, you know has something driving it, even though it's slow. And then Revolution 9, that sonic experimentation, tape loops and all that stuff, stuff that Paul had been into before and the Beatles had done on Tomorrow Never Knows, but then they, you know, Paul really wasn't into this one, but they wanted to do it and put it on. And I'm glad they did because I think that the whole point of it was kind of a fuck you, you know, And also kind of a, yes, we are allowed to experiment like this. And it's a double album, so we're going to put this on here. And I believe it was actually the tag end to the other revolution, the revolution one, that they then said, well, let's just separate it and actually work together. You know, uh, and there was a song on an old album of mine called You Can't Touch Me that was supposed to have an introduction called Sense Of, which was an instrumental and it didn't work together, even though they were conceived that way. So I separated them and they're not even in sequence. And so that's what they did here. And then, of course, the last song is a Ringo song, which is an interesting way to end any Beatles album. And it was Good Night, John Lennon wrote as a lullaby to Julian, but he wanted Ringo to sing it. Faves, again, this, this I think right now, because I, I know it's changed. I talked about um, Sgt. Peppers. I talked about Abbey Road. I talked about Rubber Soul Revolver. I think the White Album, and for the last few years, has been the case, is my favorite Beatles album. It's not easy to say that when I have so much love for so many of the other albums, but I think still that's the case. There's just so much to return to here in so many different ways, just facets upon facets. The only song I didn't love as a kid was Good Night. But understanding the context, I still won't say it's my favorite song on the album, but like I said, every every song on here, including the non-album singles, uh, Hey Jude, I mean, right? Which I have to do at every gig. It's not my favorite Beatles song to sing, but it's one of the favorites for the audience, especially the sing-along part. The harder version of Revolution, Lady Madonna, which is a pretty biting song. And, and I love the statement that Paul makes with that song. And the sound is obviously it's incredible. You know, it has to me, the singles, especially Lady Madonna are more, more cohesive Beatles than almost anything on the album itself. And then the inner light, which was the first single, it's a B side, but the first single released as a Beatle by George Harrison was this. And a beautiful song. And there are music videos out there for these. You should look that one up. It's very cool. Which brings me to the last album here. And I use that term loosely. And that's Yellow Submarine. So Magical Mystery Tour was 67. Uh, Later on, after Sgt. Pepper, 68 was, I think, the only year in which they released one album. And that was the double album, The Beatles. Then comes 69, which of course ended with Abbey Road, uh, followed by Let It Be, even though those were recorded in reverse, and I will treat them as such. 
So there were two albums released in 69. This was early in 69 as a companion to the animated film. And yes, there's amazing music on here. I'm going to say that the film is more significant artistically and culturally than the music itself. And I mean, you can't have one without the other, but that film holds up just, you know, year after year after year in whatever version you've watched. And there now is an official version that includes the song, Hey Bulldog, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, full color and restored and all that stuff. But it's both psychedelic. It's psychedelic. It's adult and it's kid all at once. Kind of like the, a book that came out a couple of years before called Drummerhoff. Drummerhoff, H-O-F-F, look it up. You will understand why I mentioned it here along with Yellow Submarine. Or for any of the Sid and Marty Croft shows like, uh, you know, Land, oh no, was it Land of the Lost? I don't know. Uh, but especially from the 1970s, even though H.R. Puffin stuff started in 69 and Banana Splits in 68, it's again that idea of psychedelic and adult and kitty that kind of, to me, rubbed off on Sesame Street. Even though Sesame Street was not psychedelic 99% of the time, it had that irreverent comedy and intelligence that was was great for adults and all the rest of the stuff was great for kids. All of it was great for everybody. And so that to me is why the movie I think is even more significant than the album. This is the only album, in fact, of the Beatles that I don't consider an actual Beatles album. I mean, I, I can, it's part of their canon, but I don't consider it an actual album. I'll say that. It's a Beatles album. I don't consider it an actual album. You might be able to say that about Magical Mystery Tour, but the history has you know been corrected. And because, again, I think it's the greatest collection of songs that the Beatles have, then yeah. But with this Yellow Submarine, there are only four new songs in the entire album. Four new song songs on the entire album. There are only six actual songs on the entire album. And the rest of it, instrumentals, which were you know new to the movie and arranged by George Martin, and most of them were composed by George Martin and worthy of being on there. But it doesn't, to me, read or sound like an actual album. To me, it's actually maybe the real double EP of The Bunch. In here, you know, to me, it's the only true official EP that the Beatles ever released. There were plenty of EPs released in other countries for other reasons, but as far as an official uh, entry into what the Beatles intended to release, I would call it more of an EP with soundtrack music. You know, it also has the distinction of, to me, being the most tossed off set of recordings, looser than loose, less deliberate then the looseness of the White Album was loose by intention. It was meant to be, I'm going to throw a quick song in here like uh, Wild Honey Pie or that little tag that Paul did on one song, Can You Take Me Back Where I'm in? You know, little things like that. Or jumping wildly from one type of song to another. That was intentional. To me, this was, the, the intentionality here was let's not do much. Let's just be as loose and crazy and possible and just kind of go nuts in the studio. And it was less and less focused than the looseness of let it be. Let it be was meant to be loose. Like let's get back to basics. Let's just, let's not do too much. Let's not overdo. There wasn't, I don't think any actual focus as an album 
and in, and there was barely any focus in how they even did each individual song. You know, of the four new songs, which I'll get to the track listing soon, uh, two of them were by George, and I think it was almost George's opportunity to say, "All right, you know, you gave me a bunch of things in the White Album. I am really motoring along right now. I'm hitting my stride." Uh, you guys might not be taking this all that seriously, which is a perfect opportunity for me to throw two songs in here that have been varyingly reviewed, but I find them both to be great songs uh, in different ways. Uh, only another song and it's all too much. And I'll talk about that later. Uh, four. Now of the six songs, two of them were previously released and I'll talk about which ones they are. Four of those six or sing-alongs, which is perfect for a film like Yellow Submarine, of course. And it shows that even though you, some people might say, oh, I want to hold your hand or she loves you, that that's just great hooks. That to me is not a single. This is like one, two, three, four, can I have a little more? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I love it. All together now, you know, uh, All You Need Is Love, which was one of the re-released songs on the album. Just four of those songs were sing-alongs. And the other two were George. Uh, who did not necessarily specialize in sing-alongs. And then, yes, second side is all George Martin. Uh, Let me just show you some of the artwork here. I'm sure you can look it up. You see it yourself. But again, this collection that I have is worth getting because it has every album and and, and more so and more things than that. Uh, I'm glad that George Martin got the spotlight that he did on this album, even though it was similar to Help. But it's, to me, even more significant because of the, you know, Help was meant to be in its own way kind of a parody of James Bond as far as as the score music. This was just unique in how it was created. It really shows uh, George Martin, you know, at his most creative and his freest in a lot of ways. And so I don't regret that that's the second side, but it's, again... I just, it's hard to call this like an actual album album. And since it's so short and there are only six songs to talk about, really only four, I'm going to talk about each song a little bit more in depth than I normally would. You know, I don't always get that opportunity. So this track listing, uh, side one is, are the song songs with words and stuff. Uh, Yellow Submarine, of course. So not from, what is it, from Revolver? Well, yeah, and... That had to be on here, you know, the title. Again, kind of a theme song, the way Magical Mystery Toward Sgt. Pepper's, but, uh, you know, became so after the fact. Clearly a sing-along. Only a Northern song. One of the many, many songs that George wrote that contained both, that contained, I won't say both, contained bitterness, anger, and humor. A really interesting mix. It was also one of the many songs George wrote about dissatisfaction with the balance of money and power. When you think of things like Taxman uh, or in his solo career, Sue Me, Sue You Blues, you know, there were so many comments that George made about money and power throughout his career. Uh, I'm going to talk in episode six about their solo careers and how they all started out as responses to what was going on in the Beatles, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to characterize each solo career and a lot of how I will characterize George's solo career is somehow, you know, part of only a Northern song. 
in so many ways. And that Northern song was the publishing company. And he was unhappy because, you know, it retained more of the rights to the songs than even the Beatles and relegated George to second class citizen because, of course, Lennon and McCartney. So it was his way of kind of being, you know, passive aggressive, I guess you could say. But a really compelling song. But again, the way it's produced, very loose, just very loose. Almost like we're going to dare you to care more about this than we do. All together now, loose by design. And of course, a sing-along, and it's a McCartney song uh, that has popped up. It's sneaky. It keeps coming back. It's a kid's song. Every few years, it pops up as popular again. Uh, There's a commercial a couple of years ago. It was like a remake of it that I was going to do a remake, and I was like, wait a minute. Well, they kind of did what I wanted to do, so no reason to do that. Made it funky, whatever. And then again, this year, for Paramount Plus, they used, I want to say it was the original or at least the re-recording in the exact style of the original. I don't know which. And then Hey Bulldog, one of my favorite Beatles songs. Weird lyrics, but you got to love the licks. You got to love the you can talk to me parts. You Just the way it, it all comes together. And talk about the looseness. They would often screw around in the studio and add things that, they weren't going to include. They end up as outtakes. You hear them on anthologies or on the deluxe editions that they're re-releasing now. But this was the song where they decided, you know what, let's keep it in. So the trail at the end, the outro, was all the nutty stuff they were doing, the yelling and the the howling and barking and all of that and just, you know, saying funny lines. Again, one of my perennial faves. It was restored into the original, uh, it was in the original movie in the UK, not in the US, restored in 99. That's the only official version now. And to me, it is probably the song that is the best representation of the Beatles as a foursome in this period. You know, pick any other period, you're going to get a better representation of them as a foursome. But in this particular period, I think Hey Bulldog is the best because it 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 includes everything in there, the humor and the and the um you know innovation and all of that stuff. Uh this is something I have to say now, which is that so many of the Beatles songs we hear, when musicians try to determine what key they're in, they go off of what's on the recording, which you would think short. But then somebody might say, well, how the hell did they play that song in G sharp and you didn't use a capo or whatever it was? Uh, or in another example, how did they play, you know, George Martin play that super fast, you know, keyboard solo in my life? They didn't. The original keys for a lot of these songs were very simple keys, G, A, D. But they decided the song didn't work as well in the, in the speed it was in. So Strawberry Fields was slowed down. Hey, Bulldog was sped up. A little bit. So even though it's, I think, B, it's in B, it doesn't sound like it's in B on the recording. But if, you know, there are purists who say, well, you have to play it how it was in the recording. No, because if you're being a real purist, you play it how they played it, which was in the key of actual B. You would play in my life solo with one hand because it was never played at that speed. It's played at like half the speed. On a piano that when sped up sounds like a harpsichord. So I just need to I need to say that because if you're out there thinking there's a there's a value to being a purist, I'm telling you there's not. Okay. And I think that this is a perfect example. And then you have It's All Too Much, which is uh the other song. Um, this is one of the few times uh that I'm featuring two 
songs at the end of this podcast because they're both in this period and they're both very relevant. It's All Too Much would be the first one. It is an excellent song. It's a great beat and arrangement. Uh, people talk called it like one of the first acid rock songs and and you know it has that kind of sprawling it really stays it's minimalist it only stays on one chord which is g but it's also maximalist in that they just threw a bunch of stuff in there and it's long and that outro is just repetitive and the intro is is longer than an average intro kind of like a cure intro uh and but i would say that because it was so tossed off in so many ways that the energy of this original doesn't actually reflect the intense energy of the lyrics, the overwhelming and fierce joy of love and of life itself that the lyrics represent are really kind of subsumed by the loose weirdness that they ended up with on on this. I think it was interpreted in a slightly off way. And it's why I'll say, and I know this, I've said this before, and it's a really bold statement that, and I mean, you're talking about the freaking Beatles. This the version that I do of it's all too much. I don't know if it's better or worse. It's more cohesive. It holds together better as a single and as a song. And I th- I hope you hear that when you hear the song. And that leads me to uh yeah, it's and it's been said to be a companion song to the next song which is All You Need Is Love. It was George's statement of that being that. And then John's, we know about All You Need Is Love. This is not actually from this album. It's just thrown onto this album to fill it up. It also was it was in the movie, as were a ton of songs, though. A ton of their previous songs were in the movie that were not included on the album, like Nowhere Man and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I think Fool in the Hill even. This one was thrown on, I think, because it was so popular at the time anyway. They said, well, let's just put it back on here. And it kind of worked as an ender for the first side. And then the second side, I'm just going to go through Pepperland, Sea of Time, Sea of Holes, Sea of Monsters, March of the Meanies, Pepperland Laid Waste, Yellow Submarine, and Pepperland, which of those seven uh, instrumental tracks is the only one that George Martin didn't fully write. It was an adaptation of Yellow Submarine. My favorites on this album, All Together Now, and Hey Bulldog. Uh, I remember as a kid finding this kind of a kick to listen to, but being overall kind of disappointed of it as an album experience, because like I said, I don't really feel like this is an album album. I really don't. Uh, I think as an album, as far as, again, the not the songs, but the album as a unit is probably their weakest, but it was intended that way because it was just a companion to the movie. Uh, I think quick conclusions before I get to the last couple sections here. Exploration went hand in hand in this period for the Beatles with dissension. With And you kind of almost couldn't not have those together in that if you're going to explore things that go off the beaten path, especially off the beaten path of what the band was intended to, to be or was or was at the time, then you're going to have to go off in individual directions in ways that are going to make it, a hello screen again, that are going to make it harder to stay together. So that made it the fracturing that it became and the beginning of the fracturing. And it gave them the full freedom, fuller than ever before and even after that, to not be the Beatles anymore. To not be the Beatles and... 
to be as liberated as possible in both artistic and personal ways. I mean, that to me is really where it, it, it stands. So as I always end, other than the questions, my songs, my version of it's all too much is I would call it a shoegaze emo power pop version with hints of the original in both sound and spirit. But again, you know, it's got that psychedelic feel, but it's more, it's harder. It's more cohesive. I really like, it's one of my favorite solos of anything I've done, guitar solos. Uh, And then following that up with the last song here, I'm So Tired. It was done for a movie a few years back uh, and was was in that movie, was on that soundtrack. I just basically took what John did and brought it into kind of present production values and made it even more slacker to the point where only one of the lines is harmonized as if the singer was like, I can really only hit this one. That's pretty much it. And the ending can't even be bothered to finish the line. You know, I give you everything I got for a little piece of that never says mind. And that was by intention. I have fun with it. Uh, I hope you enjoy those in the next couple of seconds. You'll get to hear them and you can always look them up on streaming. They're everywhere. Are any of these albums your favorite Beatles albums? I would love to know that because, you know, the White Album is one, is my favorite at the moment. Uh, what about this era as a whole? Did you not even think this was a significant or a singular kind of, uh, you know, era for the Beatles? Can you hear that contrast or that hand in hand kind of exploration and dissension in here? And understand how it created in some ways some things that were too loose, but in many and more ways, things that were so exploratory that they were groundbreaking Oh, yet again. I want to know your answers to these because as always, my objective zero music conversation and connection. Thank you so much for hanging out for part four, part five, parts five and six will be later in this season. And until then, I will talk to you next week.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.